Business's Big Podcast. It's Build a Big Podcast, the marketing podcast for podcasters. David Hooper with you. Bigpodcast.com is the site if you want to grow your podcast, build an audience around your message, get them to implement that message, get them to pay you money for that message, and also make an impact. That is where to go. You're in the right place, though, because I got you covered here on Build a Big Podcast. On this episode, I'm talking with Joe Saul Sihai. He is the co-host of the popular personal finance podcast, Stacking Benjamins. You've seen these podcasters, they seem like they've got it all together. They're just doing everything right. Joe is one of those guys. We're gonna go deep into his origin story. You'll see that he didn't always have it together. He had to figure it out just like the rest of us are figuring out, but he's definitely done that. Things are going really well for him. So well that he got a book deal because of the podcast. We're going to go into that. This is a two-parter. Part one, that's about the podcast. I talk with Joe about how he runs the podcast, the format, how he ended up where he is, building the audience, the thoughtfulness that this man has around this podcast. You're going to be impressed by it. Everything is thought through. It really is a roadmap for how to have a successful podcast. If you've looked at top podcasts on Apple Podcasts and you say, hmm, how did those guys get there? This is how to do it. You build it from the ground up. We talk exactly about how he did it. That's on this episode, part one. In part two, that one focuses on the book. The podcast enabled Joe to get a major publishing deal. He's on a 40-city tour right now. This is enabling him to not only jumpstart sales on this book, but also to reach his audience in a new way. And here's the interesting thing about it. Sponsors are paying for the whole thing. How do you do it? We're talking about that on part two. If you want to make sure that you don't miss that, you want to subscribe. It's free and it's super easy. One click is all it takes. If you go to bigpodcast.com slash subscribe, I've got three buttons. You only need to pick one. If you're on an iPhone, hit the iPhone button. Android, got a button for you. You're old-fashioned, you want to go direct via the RSS feed, I got a button for that as well. Bigpodcast.com slash subscribe. For now, part one, my interview with Joe Saul Sihai of the popular personal finance podcast, Stacking Benjamins. Joe, I want to talk about your origin story. I think it's so important for people to understand where you come from as a host. And certainly it's motivation for doing what you do, because as you know, it is not easy to do multiple podcast episodes every month. It's, uh, I would maybe even say that it's difficult. So let's talk about your origin story. I, th- I think you have an interesting one that when people hear it, they're going to understand exactly why you're doing what you're doing. You know what's funny to me that I never get to talk about is that my dad has 16 brothers and sisters, so I have a lot of cousins. And whenever we'd have family events, I was always the person who would organize these uh, variety shows. Seven, eight, nine years old. I'm writing scripts and I'm putting all my cousins to work. I'm writing some comedy, what I thought was funny at the time. And, <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, it was just awful. I would even, I had this baseball game. And I would play both sides. I would play the home team and the away team. It was like a strat status pro baseball. So I would create these teams. But you know why I did it? I did it because I had one of those old school cassette recorders where you had to press with two fingers. Yeah. And all I wanted to do was call the game. I would make these cassette tapes with fake commercials and everything where I was the announcer for this baseball game, which is pretty funny looking at what you and I do now. Yeah. That that now, you know, we call our show the greatest money show on earth because it is a circus. And I feel like I've been kind of doing audio circuses for a long time. (laughs) So that's way, way back. I don't think that's been written anywhere before. I don't think I've ever talked about that on, on a podcast before. But after that, I was a financial planner, was a disaster with money, my own money at first, but I was telling other people what to do with their money. Yeah. 
That's like a lot of experts. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Like the mechanic's car. Sure. Yeah. I was horrible, but I did get my act together. And at the same time, because of the fact that I had been a wedding DJ, my brother and I were wedding DJs when I was 16. My dad helped us. He gave us a loan and we had to write a business plan, bought equipment, and we started doing these dances. And I had done that. So I've been used to being in front of people. And I was at American Express and American Express said, hey, we need these people to be speakers. And I remember I was maybe in my third year as a financial planner. And I remember telling the people, I said, hey, uh, uh, you know, I have my licenses. I kind of know what I'm doing, but I don't feel like I know enough to stand on stage. And they're like, no, 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 no. We will give you scripts. We just need people that aren't afraid of being on stage. Right. And what's cool is because I had to explain then about three or four days a week in front of audiences about financial planning, like I totally learned financial planning better by standing in front of audiences. And then I've kind of an engineering personality. I never, I didn't know what an engineer was uh, when I was in high school. Otherwise I would have totally been one, but I, uh, <laughs> I would just verify the stuff in my script. I'm like, is this real? You know, I, I just didn't want to be up there being a talking head. Well, you got to understand it on some level because people ask questions. Absolutely. Those guys, we've all seen those guys get thrown off when they're on script and you get them off the script. Oh, you, you don't want to be in that situation. And I was totally that guy, but, but that would happen once. One time you'll get me with a question, but I will never be caught again. I will make sure that I study that, that right. aspect. And, and it is, you know, finance isn't, isn't super hard. You know, the analogy of riding a bike, it's the same thing over and over and over. And once you know all the different beats now I'm, you know, having been in this game for 35 years, it's, it's been, it's gotten to the point that, man, I can't think of the last time that there was a question that I couldn't answer. Everybody seems to ask the same 20, 25 questions. Just a few clicks of the dial, you modify each time. It's like, well, I know where this one's going. I know where this is going. We right. I want to ask you this wedding DJ thing. I was a, a mobile DJ for a little bit, and it's just so funny you mentioned this because I was just talking about this a few episodes ago. One of the great things about something like that when you're on stage or public speaking too is that you can see right away the decisions that you are making if they get the crowd engaged or if you're losing them. If the dance floor is packed, you know you made a good decision. If it clears out, you did make a good decision. I would think that would be a really amazing skill for somebody like you as a podcaster. You're doing different segments. Are you thinking like that when you're putting together your show? I'm just trying to make a show that I'm happy with because to your point, you don't get that immediate feedback. I feel like our feedback is skewed. Like I'm on this tour now and I'm seeing all kinds of fans of our show where there's a ton of love in these rooms because the, the people that are your biggest fans are the ones that come out. Right. But, but generally, as you know, when you make a show, you'll get some good positive feedback. But the piece that always sticks in your brain is people tend to write you when they disagree with something that you said. Well, it's definitely slanted to the negative feedback and bad reviews. Yeah. Yes. So I hear that stuff. But really, yeah, my gauge is just my own experience as a podcast listener. Like, I just want to make a show that I would want to listen to. That is it. And then you hope like hell there's people like you that are going to come along for this ride too. I have ADD. I like shows that have segments because if I'm not into it, I just want to flip the channel, right? And if I'm into it, then I'm going to go explore and find out more about that thing. I also like a show that is fun and funny because I think that 
whatever your podcast is, I think it's as much about performance as it is about the subject matter. So in some ways, I'm less interested in teaching people about money than I am making sure it entertains the hell out of them so that they get this warm fuzzy and they find money to be more approachable than they did before they listened. For me now, that is my main gauge. What's the show I want to listen to and can I create that? It's almost like Schoolhouse Rock. When you and I were growing up, you'd turn on Saturday morning cartoons. How did you learn about government? Schoolhouse Rock. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? Right. right. And, and, and it sneaks it up on you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it, it sneaks it up on you. It rhymes. It's got a, a nice melody. It, and that's, in a lot of ways, what we do. I really, really, really am far more interested in being fun. I love board games as an example. I can't stand board games that teach me anything. Dude. I, I, I just can't stay. Don't teach me anything. But there's this game that I really like called Power Grid. It's just a great game. And the, the subject going to sound horrible. It's going to sound so boring. You are building a network of power plants to power cities around the United States. So you're building whatever your local Chesapeake Energy or whatever, right. what, whatever right. your local power grid is, you're making your own. But I'll tell you what happened when I played that game. I didn't learn anything about power, about power grids, but I did notice that like coal and oil in the game, those plants, the plants cost less, but the resources to fuel them, the coal and the oil cost more. And wind power was incredibly expensive. The infrastructure was expensive, but then of course the wind itself then is free, right? Yeah, but, yeah. but you got to build a hell of a lot of those to, to power enough wind. And so it's funny, I'm not learning any of this though. I'm just trying to win the damn game. But I'll tell you now, every time I'm flipping through my favorite online news and I see stuff about energy, I now stop and I read it. And now I realize that because of power grid, even though I wasn't interested in learning, now I'm just all into like how energy works. I think that that's cool. It's like, I think about being a, uh, a boy scout when I was a kid and they teach you knots or something like that. And it's like, okay, here's the knot board. And but, but once you see how those knots are in action, that's yeah. when it starts to matter. And I imagine money is the same way. It's like, I don't care about watching uh, the Bear Stearns, whatever, talking <laughs> points of the year, right? How can it affect me? And I think that you guys do that. It's like, oh, that's that same philosophy those guys are using. Well, maybe I can use it in my $100 budget. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I love the kind of inference there too. A guy who really crystallized something, I believe, for a long time, this guy, Austin Kleon, has an awesome book called Steal Like an Artist. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is exactly the pathway to success. And I always have. Austin says this loud and clear, right? Don't rip people off, but take what you love, remix it, pay homage to it, tell everybody that's where you got it, but make it yours. Yeah. And this was the deal. So a decade ago, when we started Stacking Benjamins, I had been told because I was listening to podcasts since very close to the beginning. And of course, they were board game podcasts. You know, back in the days when you had to download the podcast onto your little compact device. You hook it up by wire. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Going right. way back. Yeah. <laughs> it would either fit five songs <laughs> right. or a podcast, but not both. <laughs> So I would put the podcast on this thing and I go mow my lawn. One day I forgot to charge it. So I had my little, you know, Radio Shack radio thing and I'm mowing my lawn and I'm listening to these guys click and clack. Yeah. Who had this show called Car Talk. And Car Talk was awesome because of the fact that these guys made cars so approachable and so fun. And I realized that I love this show. Every time it's on, I listen to it. I'm learning very little about a car. And I went, there's nobody doing this with money shows. 
Ramsey, Susie Orman, Clark Howard are yeah. really, they are the backstop. These guys are the last word in personal finance. And I'm like, nobody's trying to be the first word in personal finance. Our one guy on our show, my mom's neighbor, Doug, calls us the gateway drug. And we, by the way, we don't use that in our advertising. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not going to be the gateway drug for personal finance. There's got to be a better one. But, but, but I think everybody gets that point where car yeah. talk is a great way into car culture to make it easier. Stacky Benjamin's, my goal was taken right from that because I was stealing like an artist. Well, speaking of stealing like an artist, I wanted to ask you about the live feel of it. It's almost like I'm going to the Tonight Show. Did that influence how you guys set up these episodes? Because, you know, you got your announcer. It seems like he's in charge and he brings, all right, here's our guy, Joe, you know, and <laughs> yeah. I, I love the, the feel. I've not heard any other podcast do that, actually, but it feels like it comes from something I've seen, probably television. Totally comes from the, we, we try to give a Tonight Show vibe at the beginning. I picked that music out specifically to have a Tonight Show vibe, but all that, you know, when we started the show, it was two guys, me and my co-host, uh, OG, and OG is short for other guy. So yeah, which I think is hilarious because everybody <laughs> thinks of you. Oh, Joe, just such a great show. And who's that other guy? Perfect. Right. Yeah. Right. And it is other guy. And, uh, <laughs> but he's a working CFP and I'm a, you know, former financial planner. But here's the thing is that nobody, we thought when we were creating the show, nobody want, if, if our goal really is financial literacy, what we don't want to be is another expert. And when people told me I should have a podcast, I said, I don't want to be Dave Ramsey. And then I heard that car talk thing and I went, okay, we can approach this from the other side. But what does that mean? That means that we need to make it approachable and fun. So the reason why we're in my mom's basement doing this and the reason why my co-host for a long time had a bag over his head, uh, yeah, because he on the pictures. Yeah. 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 Because he was the, he was, he was like that magician. Remember the magician on Fox that would tell you all the stuff. Yeah. The mass magician. Yes. Yep. We were going to do like the mask CFP thing where he's going to talk dirt about what most CFPs can't talk about. Right. And, um, and he, and, and he still does, but now he can take the mask off because new listeners are like, what's the mask about? And I'm like, oh, it's such an old joke. But at the <laughs> beginning, we were two guys that knew what we do. And I thought we set that up very nicely. But I'll tell you what happened. We got a few negative reviews, which I think you should pay attention to your reviews and you should try to take the stank off of them. <laughs> And you should go, is there anything I can really do with this? And a review we got early on was, you know, the show has all these segments, but I feel like I don't know where it's going. When we revamped the show about three and a half years in, four years in, to give it not just that Tonight Show feel, Doug's job at the beginning of the show is to tell you as the listener that we're going to be doing a lot of different stuff. On today's show, we're going to do this, and in headlines, we're doing this, and we're going to throw out the Avon Lifeline to right. so-and-so has got a question. So you know going in that we have segments. So he's teasing it. It's exactly what he's, – he's just giving our listener a roadmap of kind of where we're headed, right. and it's not going to be this in-depth, long interview. It's not going to be Joe Rogan for three hours. It's going to be this quick-moving thing. And also, you know, the reason he says – live from Joe's mom's basement, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, is also because a lot of people that come to us come from the Dave Ramsey community. Ramsey is the bajillion pound gorilla in our space. Right. And we're like the anti-Dave Ramsey. And, and, and by that, I don't mean we're anti-Dave Ramsey. I mean, we're not like that at all. He zigs, you zag. And exactly. I think yeah. you have to do that to stand out. Dave Ramsey is, I think he's the top fifth syndicated show on radio. He's the top syndicated show that's self-syndicated. Nobody knows that he, radio people know, you know it. I mean, he does all that syndication himself. He owns everything. Isn't that amazing? He's everywhere. And 
you're not going to compete with that. He's done it for 30 years. He started here in Nashville as a guy who was buying time on the air. And I actually knew his co-host who was a home improvement guy. And he was teaching you how to do your own home improvement. <laughs> they couldn't afford the, the radio time themselves. <laughs> so, and self-published his first book too. So he's a guy about owning his stuff. But yeah, you can't compete at the level that he's at because he's no. he's gone to the next the five steps ahead of anybody, I would argue. Well, and I don't want to, right? I mean, if, if my goal is to be a better on-ramp, I don't want to be the last word. I want to be like an airport where I curate voices that I think are responsible and good in the space. And these are the different airlines and you decide which plane you get on. I'm going to show you three or four per show in the circus. And then uh, you decide if this fits you or not. If, if it doesn't fit you, it's going to be entertaining. If it does fit you, then you can go down that rabbit hole and hopefully you come back to us because we're a good curator of that. Well, you know what else he does differently than you do? And I don't know if you did this on purpose, but when you listen to Dave Ramsey, it's basically the same call on the same episode that you heard 10 years ago. <laughs> and it's somebody who calls in and go, Dave, I charged a 79 cent Coca-Cola down at the market and uh, I didn't pay it. And I went there five years later. And now I'm $80 million in debt. What do I do? It's that story again and again. It's somebody who's in tremendous pain from making a decision. You guys seem to be somebody who's maybe uh, not there reactively, but thinking long-term, I want to be able to retire with money. I want to be comfortable. I'm going to be responsible. Is that on purpose or is that just even, is that even accurate? Is that just my outlook to what you guys do? Well, I think the, the, the place where we're a lot different is the next step of what happens when they call in because that person calls in and then Dave yells at them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he yells at him in a very entertaining way. Right. And and think about, you know, when Susie Orman had her show, she yells at people and right. it's very entertaining. She's good at yelling at people. And and I don't want to yell at anybody. Yeah. I want it to be a judgment free zone. And for as, as great as those people are and the number of people they turn on, that's also the reason why there's this study by this group called nonfiction and the study is called the secret financial lives of Americans. And in that study, there's a bunch of wild statistics, like the number of people that have eaten out of a dumpster or stolen a lunch at work, right? Yeah. There's always yeah. somebody stealing lunch at work, but it's yep. because they're broke. Yep. They got nowhere to go. But the big statistic is 150 million people in the United States cry about their money. And you would think that that is people living paycheck to paycheck. And certainly that's a bigger percentage of people, but of people making over $200,000 a year, nearly half of those people say that they cry about their money. There's all these people, you know, there's blogs, there's podcasts, there's, there's books, there's all these resources. And yet we're leaving tons of people behind. Right. And I think it's because Dave and Susie for all the good that they do, they also scare the hell out of people. I'm like, oh my, I am screwing this up and somebody's going to yell at me. Right. This is the part that's on purpose. We want to be, hey, no judgment. And about once a quarter, we try to do that Phoenix from the flame story. Uh, somebody, because there's tons of these people, and Dave also celebrates these people as well. And this part we have in common, somebody that got into a lot of debt, they really screwed up. They had this turning point in their life and they found the road out. We tell that story, hopefully to give people a flashlight so they know where they're going. I like that. That piece is cool, but yelling at you about your stuff, it just ain't for me. Well, when I asked about your origin story, that's what I, I thought you were actually going to tell me because you were one of those guys. Maybe it's, we should dive into that. You're practicing what you preach here. This is something that you've been there. You've seen both sides of this. It's not like you're sitting on a, a solid gold limo on cloud wheels. You're, uh, <laughs> or, or you weren't always if you are now. Oh, I was, I was so rotten. Listen to this. 
So, uh, my, I mean, my parents are great and they taught me how to hustle and have a good work ethic and, and, you know, be respectful of others and great stuff. But like a lot of families, I wasn't allowed to have any money ever in my hands ever. So I I'm on my way to college and I go to the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina. So two, two pieces of that, that people just need to remember. Number one is I'm at a military college. I can't have a job. And then number two is I'm in South Carolina. The first week of school, I go into the student union, Mark Clark Hall, and there's laws against this, but credit card companies still find ways to get it. People like me. And it's this line of people who are just trying to get into debt. Right? Right. Just, just, I don't remember if it was a stadium blanket or a Frisbee or what it was, but it was American Express, which is funny because I ended up representing the company later. <laughs> sure. I'm like, I don't think you guys did your homework because do you know who I am? But I stand in line. I write truthfully. I have no income and I signed. I didn't need a co-signer. And you know what happened four weeks later, I get this cool green card. Right. Well, the first time we get leave, I go to uh, uh, the North Charleston Mall and we go to this really high-end restaurant that you may or may not be familiar with this place, Dave. It's called Ruby Tuesday. Oh, yeah. I don't the highest. Know. Oh, the they highest. have a salad bar. Like this place is swank. <laughs> croutons, all of it. Oh, it's yes. And no extra charge for the croutons too, which is a people pleaser. <laughs> so I'm with like five of my friends and the bill comes at the end of lunch. Well, me... I've only been in school for four or five weeks and, and I want to make friends. So I just whipped this thing out of my wallet and I'm like, guys, it's on me. Lunch is on me. I walked down to the other end of the mall to Nordstrom. It's, it, and I'll give away my age here. It is 1986. I find this sweater on a mannequin. I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. I find a sweater and it is Duran Duran badass. It is like this <laughs> deep purple with like this paisley collar. Oh Yeah. I buy this sweater that I'm going to wear both cold days. And it was amazing to me that about three weeks later, you know, back then it's before email. So you would march to back to Mark Clark Hall where all of the mailboxes were and they had that glass front and you get excited when you'd look in there and you'd see that you got some mail. Right. And I was super excited this day. There's an envelope in there for me. And it's from my friends at American Express. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I wonder what they want. Because I never, never crossed my mind that I was going to have to actually pay this bill. Right. And I don't even remember how much it was. You know, maybe 200 bucks, 250 bucks. I had no money. So I did what any sane person would do. I called my mom. And I said, mom, we got a problem. And she goes, no, you've got a problem. It's a you problem. Yeah. And I couldn't have a job. So 60 days later, my card was gone. My credit was ruined. I spent the next summer working with a collection agency to pay back, you know, this monster interest that, that had accumulated this interest and fees and penalties and stuff to get rid of that. But my credit was wrecked. Well, how great to learn that lesson early, though, when $200 can do the job rather than some of these guys who invested everything in Bitcoin or real estate or yeah. whatever. Yeah. But at the time, obviously, I mean, if, if you don't have it, you don't have it. You still got to dig out. I didn't stop there, though. Oh, <laughs> I, oh no, 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 so no. You didn't learn the lesson. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. When I got some credit back, when I got some credit back, I made sure I got into even more and more debt. And uh, and my company, this disc jockey company, of course, you know, you did the mobile DJ thing. Yeah. Something's always broken or you always got to buy. At that time, it was the newest record and then CDs. Oh, and yeah. then, you know, you're switching over to CD players and then you yeah. want the new Newmark mixer. And so uh, I was always behind the eight ball. And I had this lie in my head that if I just made a little more money, it would make things better. And what, what I really needed was a budget. What I truly needed was to learn how to live within my means, no matter what I made. 
and then it would help. But everybody lives this. Hey, if I just make a little more, things are going to be, no, it's not because you've got no skills with money. So I actually got to the point. I'm a really good financial planner. I'm in the end of my first year. I borrowed money from everybody. I had this rusted out minivan that I had to park around the corner from the office because I didn't want my clients to see that I drove this Bondo mobile. Right. Right. I drove this just horrible thing. And I had a young family. My wife was still in school. And so she's racking up more student loan debt. We have two young children. I borrowed from all my family members. I have zero credit. I leave the office and I get about halfway home and I run out of gas. And I realize that I have no, I've got nowhere to go. Like I have no, I can't ask a family member anymore. Nobody will give me credit. In fact, a friend of mine, when I went to replace that van, a friend of mine goes, oh man, because I trusted him. And I said, hey, listen, my credit is horrible. Like, I don't think I can get a car. He's like, oh, these car lots give everybody a car. I'm like, I don't want a new car. He's like, yeah, but the new cars are where you'll be able to get a loan. Like used car loans are harder to get. Right. But a new car loan, they, they give those to everybody. Oh, I've seen guys do it. They'll have a transmission problem or something. And it's easier for them to get a new car than it is $1,500 for a transmission. Right. Yep. Yes. Well, guess what? I proved that wrong. I went in and I was working with this guy and he's like, uh, yeah, we can't give you a loan. <laughs> That's how bad things were. <laughs> it was horrible. And so anyway, so I run out of gas and this was, you know, everybody has this time in their life where it's got to change. Things have to change. Right. And, and this was my day that I cried about money because I'm digging through this nasty van and the floorboards and in these seats, uh, you know, my kids were like two years old at the time and imagine around their car seats, like the Cheerios and whatever. <laughs> and I found like 85 cents and I walked and this is gonna sound like an old guy story. Cause I walked like a mile, you know, uphill with no shoes, mm-hmm. no, but, but I walked like a mile to this mobile station the dude did not want to give me the plastic gas can because he thought I was going to steal it. He wanted me to pay like some deposit. And I did, I had 85 cents. I'm like, I can't give you my 85 cents as a deposit. You just got to trust me. And somehow he did. Maybe it was because you could tell that I've been crying. I put 85 cents in my gas can. I have no idea how the heck I made it the rest of the way home, but I did. And that was the day I, I changed things and I took control. But the very first thing I did was I started surrounding myself with better people. And by the way, and this has been a key to my career, to the podcast, to my life, to everything is the gratitude I have by the great people that support me and everything that I do has been huge. But I had to surround myself with better people that had better habits And then I had to quit trying to get rich quick and I had to build a foundation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've been there. I want to know how you keep in touch with that part of yourself. Because something I've seen a lot of podcasters do, experts do, just people in general, old people versus young people, you forget the pain that you went through. It's like they say women forget the pain of childbirth. And I think we're all that way at various things. You mentioned podcasting you're not as in touch with people as you would be if they were right in front of you, like with a live audience. Sure. Uh, You're doing the live tour right now, 40 city tour for the book. That certainly helps. But how do you keep yourself relatable and empathetic to the people that are calling you in, in a situation that was, you know, frankly, self-inflicted a lot of the times. Sure. 
I go back to that time and I think about serving people. And we were talking about this. Somebody at, at our event last night asked us about this, you know, looking at your stats and growing your show. And I'll tell you, Dave, every single time that I have tried to grow my show, um, or not, not even that every time I've been obsessed with this audience that I don't yet have, things don't go well. The show's not that great. I feel like I'm chasing this ghost, but when I try to make a show that I want to listen to and I think about the people that already listen to me and I serve those people, my audience size grows. And so I think about who our avatar listener is and I try to speak to this specific woman because I also think that if you speak with some specificity to a person, it becomes a little more universal. People can see the nuance versus it. I think if you try to talk to everybody, you're not going to, you're not going to do as good a job. Well, I love that you say that you're focusing on the people that you've got now. I think that a lot of podcasters, we have a tendency to worry about the listeners we don't have yet, as you mentioned. And it's your true fans that are listening to you. Your true fans are coming out to this 40 city tour that you've got. If you don't take care of them, it's almost like, have you ever been checking in to a hotel? You're probably doing it right now on this 40 city tour where there's a line and then the guy at the desk answers the phone and he keeps the other <laughs> right. 4,000 people waiting in line, <laughs> waiting longer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, work I've, with the people you got, man. I've experienced that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And then those guys have a good experience. They're going to tell their friends. And one of the things about Dave Ramsey, it's so funny to use him as an example that we see all these stickers around in Nashville because he's based just outside of Nashville. It says, I'm debt free or bought and paid for, or don't laugh, it's paid for, whatever. It's, you can tell it's a Dave Ramsey sticker. And when you have somebody who's had success with your method, they'll do your marketing for you. Yes, absolutely. Totally agree. And you know, when you look at the ROI of this tour, when you're putting 30 to 35 people in a room in 40 different cities, there's not a huge immediate ROI, but a mentor of mine said there's the short term and obvious, and then there's the long term and not so obvious. And really a lot of the reason why I decided to do 40 cities is because with the book, I had an opportunity to do it, but also it's those relationships and turning your fans into super fans. If you have the opportunity, oh yeah, you got to take it. Let's build some bridges with the people that love you enough that they would come see you locally. And you know what they're going to do that day? They're going to tell people the event that they're, you know, because you're like, hey, David, what are you doing tonight? Well, you know, I'm doing this thing. You know, they're at least telling four or five people that they're coming to see you. And then if they have a good time at the event, if you structure the event well and make it really entertaining, hopefully they'll brag about it the next day too. And that'll grow your audience. I talked about this a few episodes ago, talked about seeing an artist who came through town and he had just gotten off of a huge international tour and he was doing you know, 10, 20, 30,000 seat venues. Comes in, this show didn't sell well in Nashville. So he's got 500 people out of maybe 35 or 5,000 people that should have been there. And he was so mad. And I was mentioning this, and I think this is a topic for this conversation, that that guy missed an opportunity to really connect with his true fans, to give them an experience that they thought that they were getting something special. Those small audiences are amazing for that because you can connect with them in such a different way than you could if you were on an arena tour or if you were on like a, a Dave Ramsey stage where there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people and they don't get to reach out and touch you like they do now. So let's talk about some of those people that you're meeting on the road here because are you hanging out afterwards? How's that working? 
Yeah. Afterwards, whoever's left and uh, uh, we'll go grab a beer. But I also try oh, so to- Oh, you're really doing it. That's way deep. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But there's at that point, there's usually like eight of us and I cut it off at one beer because I can't do that in 40 cities without going into a 12-step program. <laughs> right. Generally, I'm a little hungry. So I'll try to get a, a little appetizer and uh, have one drink with some fans. Yeah. More than one beer though, dude, you're starting to pull out the oh. Amex and uh, you're going to start paying for all of them. So oh, yeah, that's right, right, right back where you started. <laughs> that's a whole different, whole different uh, ball. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, you, you know, it's funny before we even get to that, just back to that guy, uh, back to this, this musician and think about who he's mad in front of. He's mad in front of the people that actually showed up. Right. That's the wrong audience to be mad in front of. I think if he's going to be mad, that's fine, but do it with his publicist and the people that put it on and figure out what went wrong. But to do it in front of those people that showed up is crazy. Like, don't get mad at me. I'm here to see you, to support you. Yeah. Like I said, those are your best fans. Those are guys who really wanted to be there and, and they could have yeah. gone to the work or wherever they were going the next day and said, man, you'll never believe this. I got to see this guy in front of just a few people and it would be that moment. Yes. And, and, and that's what I think that we forget as podcasters because we're not really in touch with an audience. We don't see them. You and I are, you're in a hotel room, I'm assuming right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a closet, a tricked out closet. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know where this is going, but it's a lot different from when we're in person. But, you know, I've seen this since, since COVID has really hit, you know, you've seen people act in public as if it were their house. Like when they go to the movie theater, they're talking on the phone or something. Yes. <laughs> I think we do that as podcasters. <laughs> I had a dude in the train behind me who decided that I wanted to listen to his music all the way, yeah. you know, between <laughs> cities, but thank you. Hey, but back to your question. Um, uh, I'll tell you what we do at our events because there's a few things that I think are really important. Number one is I try to have a local influencer be our MC at every event. Smart. So that's a good comedy trick. And it's also a band trick to have somebody open up for you. That's uh, going to vouch for you. Absolutely. Yeah. If it's somebody, the local community knows, and luckily because of the nature of our show, I get, I know a lot of those people. So in every city, I have somebody locally who is going to be act as MC. I give them a few questions to start off. I also, by the way, we could talk about this because this is important. I found somebody to sponsor the tour so that I have a brand that's going with me that I really love, but that also is paying for this entire thing. I was going to ask you about that. Okay. So 40 stops, obviously you got to book it, schedule it, a lot of logistics. And then there's the money of yeah. hotels, planes, trains, automobiles. I don't know how you're doing it, but you're going everywhere, man. <laughs> the United States is very large. <laughs> I'm finding that out. Yes. I didn't know. Who yeah. knew? <laughs> Let's dive into that a little bit. Let's talk about, first of all, a Joe Saul Cihai of Stacking Benjamins, available online everywhere you get your podcasts. The website, stackingbenjamins.com. The new book that we are talking about, it's called Stacked. And if you go to the episode notes, podcast.bigpodcast.com, I've got all of these things linked. You want to do that. And while you were there, you want to subscribe because there's part two. That's where we're going into the book, how we got the book deal. We're going to talk more about this 40 city tour connecting with his audience in a new way, jumpstarting sales of this book. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, this is a roadmap for having a successful podcast. It's also a roadmap for having a successful business around your podcast. We're going to break it down for you. That is next on part two of my interview with Joe Saul Cihai of Stacking Benjamins. Thanks for listening. If you got questions, you got comments, reach out to me, bigpodcast.com. That's the easiest way to do it. And I will see you on the next episode of Build a Big Podcast.